even salvation is about God's glory. It's not about us. And when we focus on salvation as that's the big thing that God does, no, God works for his own glory. And salvation is one of many, many, many things (laughs) that he does for his own glory. You and I are saved for his glory. The body of Christ exists for his glory, period. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Word Processing's Cover to Cover series, in which our goal is to move through all 66 books of the Bible, one by one, in order to grow not only in our understanding of them individually, but also in our understanding of how they fit together as an inspired and cohesive whole. Today, we come to Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and to help us better understand its contents and place in the Bible, we welcome to the podcast Dr. Daniel Geffrick. Dr. Geffrick is the teaching pastor at Oak Tree Community Church in South Bend, Indiana. He also teaches Bible theology and biblical languages at Calvary University, Tyndale Theological Seminary, and the Word of Life Bible Institute. In addition to this, he is the author of several books and the founder of Theology is for Everyone Ministries. Dr. Geffrick, it's good to speak with you. Thanks for helping us out. Hey, good to be back. Thanks, Josiah. Dr. Geffrick, when we come to Ephesians, where do we find ourselves in the Bible? What are its historical and canonical contexts? Well, it's pretty cool. It's almost right smack in the middle of the New Testament, as far as uh, if you're, you know, Matthew through Revelation. And so if you were to, if if all you have is a New Testament, you just sort of grab it and open it up, there's a good chance you're going to be fairly close to Ephesians. (laughs) So, and other than, um, other than Romans from a theological aspect of salvation specifically, uh, I think Hebrews is one of, or sorry, Ephesians is one of the, uh, most theological books when it comes to salvation. So Paul, it's one of four that's called like the prison epistles because Paul was in Rome under house arrest. The end of the book of Acts tells us that he was in Rome for two years. And he wrote Ephesians alongside Colossians and Philemon and probably a few months or maybe not quite a year later, Philippians, all out of that that house arrest, he refers to himself in chapter four as a prisoner of the Lord Jesus. You know, that's what he was doing right then. Ephesus was a, was a hot spot for the early church, right? Paul had spent three years there, uh, both in the synagogues with the Jews and God-fearing Gentiles, but also in the lecture hall of Tyrannus, uh, the book of Acts tells us. So almost setting up what maybe one of the first seminaries, one of the first Christian seminaries. So they were extremely well taught. The elders of the church of Ephesus were some of the last people that Paul wanted to talk to before he thought he was going to end up going to be arrested and going to Rome. Timothy spent several years there as Paul's right-hand man and then his apostolic representative. Uh, And then church history tells us that the apostle John probably finished off his ministry there as well, possibly going there after the Isle of Patmos. So Ephesus was, from a Christian standpoint, you couldn't get, (laughs) other than maybe Jerusalem, you couldn't get any place that was, you know, more uh, theoretically, theologically sound, right? But it was also a hotbed of paganism, sexual immorality. The temple of Diana or temple of Artemis was right there in Ephesus, we're told in Acts that one of the results of Paul's ministry there 
was that there was this huge bonfire where they burnt all of these magical books and incantations and everything. So we're talking a dark, dark place that had a lot of light given to it. But when he wrote this letter, you still got that dichotomy between both of those. That's helpful. Now, before we get into some of the details of this letter, is there a discernible structure to the book that we can maybe use to help get our minds around the whole? Well, the common one, and this sort of shows up in Paul a lot, is you know the first half is doctrinal, the second half is practical, and and you we really do see that you know chapters four, five, and six are taking the doctrine that he presented in the first three and really putting them into practice. But it's also sort of a story, and that is in chapter one he is setting up what salvation is, sort of, and he's setting up one of his big themes, I assume we'll talk about, is is the church. He sort of introduces that from a salvation perspective and then comes back in chapter two to why do we need salvation. Chapter three, then, is what God is doing with it in the future, and then chapters four, five, and six are what are we supposed to do with it now. So I think there is a structure there, sort of a a more detailed structure than just doctrine slash practice. Is there anything we lose from your point of view when we slice and dice and structure out what is actually just a letter? It's a communication to a bunch of believers. Is there something we can actually lose when we slice it up like that, do you think? Um, yes, I suppose if we do it too much, but because it's a letter, you know, it's not written as a treatise, you know, maybe like Romans was a letter, but it's very treatise-like. One of the things that we, we have to remember about uh, Ephesians is that it was probably to the church at Ephesus, but that, that phrase in Ephesus in uh, you know, 1, one uh, is debated. And so there are a lot of people who think this was supposed to be more of a, of a circular letter. Maybe it started in Ephesus and it was supposed to go around to different places. The fact that Paul had so many connections there in Ephesus and not one single personal greeting in this letter sort of brings that out. So it's supposed to be something that is for the churches, for the body of Christ as a whole. And the fact that it's a letter, I think Paul really was thinking through what is it that I want to say? It's not just, you know, this isn't Philemon. This isn't a personal letter like, you know, first Timothy or, or Titus or something that, you know, here's some doctrine, but it's you and me, right? Since it's to a church, a large church, and probably multiple churches, it's less personal and it is more structured. And so in Ephesians, I don't think it's quite as bad to slice and dice as if we were to do that to maybe Philemon or something. And not that that changes the contents at all, but it does make sense because we communicate the same way in varying degrees of formality, depending on the anticipated audience, I suppose. Sure. Yeah. You know, I mean, even this interview, right? You're asking me questions that, uh, you know, you've thought of ahead of time. There are certain answers that you're hoping to get that I'm probably going to bomb. Uh, there's, you know, whatever. Uh, but there is there is a structure to an otherwise informal conversation. Yeah. And I look at Ephesians the same way. He had something he wanted to present. He wanted to do it in a logical, thoughtful way. And yet, hey, I'm still Paul. And, you know, most of you know me. Well, let's try to dig out those things that he wanted to present. You know, after his greeting and his blessing that opens the letter, Paul launches into a monster opening statement, verses <laughs> 3 through 14 being one giant sentence. 
And it's just as weighty as it is long, introducing topics like predestination, adoption, redemption, administration, and inheritance. You know, without giving us a full exposition of that one sentence, Dr. Geffrich, what is Paul trying to do here in light of the whole letter? And why would he open this writing with such a bang? That is the question that has eluded scholars for centuries, hasn't it? So well, now you're going to solve it for us. We're going to solve it right here. <laughs> now, one of the cool things about Ephesians and, you know, without stealing the thunder from upcoming Colossians as well, but Ephesians and Colossians are sort of two sides of the same coin. It's about the church and it's about Christ, specifically from a body of Christ standpoint. And whereas Colossians will focus on Christ as the head of the body, Ephesians really focuses on the body itself. So what I think we see in Ephesians is what is the body? How to get into the body? Why do we need a body? How is the body supposed to function? That sort of thing. And I think this first, like you said, this first bang that he begins the letter with is uh, twofold. Number one, it's how to get into the body. You, know, you got to be, it's, it's salvation, but it's, it's more than just that. Because one of the things that we see in theological circles today, we hear it in churches, we read it in books, on podcasts, all over the place, is this concept of salvation as like the main theme or one of the main themes of the Bible. Some people call, you've, you've heard the phrase, the plan of redemption or the story of redemption that ties the whole Bible together. And we can get caught up thinking that salvation is what God is all about. And that is very human-centric, isn't it? Mm -hmm. That's very man-centered thinking. And I think what Paul does here is, first of all, he introduces all three members of the Trinity. We have the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit involved in salvation. We get to see how they interact with each other and how they interact with the work itself. But each of the, if, if we wanted to slice and dice right? We have these 11 verses that we can break down into verses three through six is the father, seven through 12 is the son and 13 and 14 is the spirit. And if you look at the close of each of those sections, six, 12 and 14, we have in one form or another to the praise of his glory or verse six is the praise of the glory of his grace. Even salvation is about God's glory. It's not about us. And when we focus on salvation as it's, that's the big thing that God does. No, God works for his own glory. And salvation is one of many, many, many things <laughs> that he does for his own glory. You and I are saved for his glory. The body of Christ exists for his glory, period. And I think Paul starts off the letter that way to get us in the right mindset. If that's true, that's why the rest of this stuff is important. And it's almost, I don't want to oversimplify this, but summed up in the opening phrase of that sentence, when in verse three, he said, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And we might say, well, what are those blessings? Well, here we go. And he just unloads and backs the truck <laughs> up and says, here's a sample of the blessings. And so because of all that, because of all the blessings he's given us, Bless the Lord, bless God, praise him. He is worthy of these things. And so yep. to me, I'm with you. This is an overwhelming sentence that we could talk forever trying to plumb the depths of, but it is in a sense, I love how you put it there. He is setting the tone for this letter, giving us the right mindset before he gets into some of these doctrinal issues that he wants to address. Is that fair to say? 
I think so. Yeah, I think so. I, I love the fact that you connected with verse three. Uh, I'm using the New American Standard here, uh, the 2020 edition. Verse eight opens with which he lavished on us. Right. You know, this it is such a and he uses the word rich a couple of times in inheritance. It is such a, not just a powerful passage, but a rich passage. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just I don't know how somebody could read these first 14 verses and not just stop in awe of what God has done, is doing and is going to do. Yeah. And again, to the praise of his glory. <laughs> For sure. Could you say a word maybe about this little tiny phrase that comes up, I want to say 10, 11 times in this verse, this in Christ, in him, through Christ, in the beloved. What is Paul encapsulating in those two words? Uh, That is a phrase that he really likes, not just here in Ephesians, but all over his letters. And again, you know, without trying to steal from Colossians, but Ephesians and Colossians are so intertwined. Colossians 3 says that our life is hidden in Christ, right? With God in Christ. Uh, the fact that we are in Christ, and that's that's really the whole body concept. You know, 1 Corinthians 12, we are baptized by one spirit into Christ, and we can't leave, right? Once we're in, we can't get out, we can't fall out, we won't get kicked out, we won't get taken out. This in him is our new identity. And if my identity is in Christ, then when I pray, in Jesus' name, I'm praying as part of Jesus' body. I'm praying with his authority, which should make us double check the things that we're praying for, right? <laughs> you know, this, this whole thing about in Christ is now we are, now you get into the, you know, the, the body, the members of the body, we're members of one another and we're responsible to each other and we belong to each other. And now you get into spiritual gifts and building up. It's just, That is that phrase in Christ is the foundation, the springboard for so many of the other doctrines that we believe and teach all the time. It's the thing that ties them together, I think. Sure. Well, now that our minds are in the right mode, because Paul has set them there in that opening sentence, and you've talked about this a little bit, how the first three chapters, the first half of this book are very doctrine heavy. I'm wondering if you could summarize for us, what are some of the main theological truths Paul is concerned with in this letter and why are they important for the Ephesians and some of the other churches perhaps that are reading this to grasp? Well, it's sort of interesting that there are, most people say 10 or 11 major doctrines, okay, major categories of doctrinal truth that every verse in the Bible would fit into one or one or more of these 11 categories. And we see them all throughout the Bible and, you know, some books intentionally address some more than others, that sort of thing. Ephesians, for as short as it is, actually hits on all 11 of them. So he talks about the Bible itself. He draws from Old Testament scripture, especially. Uh, He's quoting scripture, which means he's giving authority to the scripture in his doctrinal treatise. Uh, Then we have the three members of the, the Godhead, the Trinity, Father, Son, Spirit. We see those, like we saw already, just in the first 14 verses. And he keeps them separated, even though there's a unity in the Godhead, he keeps referring to them separately for different reasons throughout this letter. You have angels, you have humans as two more, Uh, you have sin is a major doctrine, you have salvation, of course, is a major doctrine, Israel and the church as two separate doctrines, especially in chapter two for Israel, and then you've got the end times is not as big of a deal here in Ephesians, but he does talk about 
in the coming ages, the coming ages, right? And the fullness of times uh, here in chapter one. So he actually touches on all 11 major doctrines in this six chapter book. So to say, what are some of the key themes? Like he's bringing them all together, right? So what is the body of Christ? How do we get into it? How do we live in it today? And what is God going to do with us in the future? I, I think is still the broad picture of what he's trying to do, the themes here. And he just he just sort of hits, not shotgun approach. It's very logical. It's very methodical. But he, he walks through past, present, and future of, of the body here. As you go through and you mentioned chapter two, you really do get the sense that Paul is advocating for the bringing together of something that was not always together. So he says famously in chapter two, but now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ for he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. What's going on here? What is motivating this call to unity, Dr. Defrick? Well, as we see in some of his other letters, sometimes Paul presents himself as the apostle to the Gentiles, and some or not presents him, he was, identifies himself. Um, sometimes he identifies himself as a Jew. And that's what we're seeing in this position here. He, I mean, of course, he's the apostle who's writing, but he's also a Jewish man, not a Gentile. And so there are times, we see this in Romans, we see this in Galatians and some other, other places, where he says, okay, now I'm going to come over and put my Jewish hat on here because we had all of these things as Israel, as Jews, we had the covenants and the promises. We had the Messiah, you know, Romans nine, he lists all of these benefits of that Israel had. And you guys, you Gentiles had none of this. You were exiles, you were strangers, you were foreigners, you were, uh, and he caps it off with without hope and without, or not having hope and without God in this world, right? You had nothing. But, and he doesn't specifically bring it up, but I know it's in the back of his mind, Genesis 12, the, the, uh, the, the, uh, the seed form of the Abrahamic covenant is that in you, Abraham, all nations of the earth, all families of the earth are going to be blessed. And Paul brings that concept of it's always been about Jews and Gentiles, humanity together, and he brings it to the point where Christ is the one who did it. And so... We have unbelieving Jews, we have unbelieving Gentiles, and in this dispensation, we have the church that is made up of both. And that enmity, that part, that middle wall of partition he talks about, that, th that's where he's bringing the new groups into one new man, one new group, and specifically one new body. Mm -hmm. And he's bringing out that body of Christ concept here. So he makes it very clear, especially near the end of that chapter, that a new building, a new structure is being erected on one foundation. So you talked about these two groups being brought together into one new structure, one new man. Does this eradicate the two different groups? Are they now no longer what they were, but only one thing together? Or are they still distinct within that body? Now, some people would argue that there are no distinctions at all, right? You can quote Galatians 3.28, no, no Jew or Gentile, no male, female, no slave or free. But contextually, that's talking about how we get in, not who we are, not our specific identity. I'm a Gentile. I'm a, I'm a non-Jewish person. And bringing me into the body of Christ doesn't make me a Jew. 
and bringing a Jew into the body of Christ doesn't make them a non-Jewish person, right? Um, we don't lose that identity. My wife and I are both members of the body of Christ. We're both believers, but we have not lost our gender identity, you know, as male and female, um, social background, uh, ethnicity, economic, all of those things, we still maintain those. So what we're talking about is a unity, and, and that's going to be a big thing that comes up, especially starting in chapter four. But really in this whole book, this unity in the body, that those things should not be dividing us. They may be used to divide us, but in Christ, we have something stronger. You know, it's that phrase that gets thrown around a little bit too much, in my opinion, sometimes, you know, there are more things that unite us than divide us. But in Christ, that's true, because Christ is the one who brought the far and the near together into one new thing that is greater than the sum of its parts. But that doesn't mean that we lose the parts, right? In fact, it's the diversity in the unity that makes this what Peter referred to and Paul also refers to as that multifaceted grace of God that uh, almost like that disco ball or that diamond as the light shows on it. You can't have that if we're all bland. If, if we lose all of our distinction, then the church of Christ, the, the body of Christ is, is really a, a boring, bland thing. Mm -hmm. Is it safe to say he's calling for unity and not uniformity? Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's a good way to say it. Yeah. Because uniformity, yeah, it makes us all the same. It's, it's unity within diversity. Yeah. It's unity within diversity. And what we find is that it's doctrine that helps unify us. And, uh, but especially it's just Christ. It's Christ himself mm -hmm. that, uh, you know, if in Christ is our identity, then the diversity does not matter nearly as much. Mm -hmm. It seems to me that this is wrapped up in the genius of the metaphors used of the church as well. A building, a body. If we were all the same, that's not much of a building. If we're all a stack of drywall, if we're all nails, if we're all light fixtures, then it's not a building anymore. It's a pile of drywall. Right. And it's the same with a body. If we're all ribs or we're all chins, then we're not a body anymore. right? And so it's actually, like you're saying, I so appreciate that. It's the diversity within unity that actually makes us function and brings, as you said at the beginning, most glory to God. Yeah. And in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul really builds on that whole body concept, you know, the different members and parts, you know, if, if the whole eye were, or if the whole body were an eye, where would the smelling be or the hearing be, or, you know, and it's that concept, you know, you and I are mouths, right? That's what we do. You know, we're, we're teachers. That's, that's what we do. You know, but if everyone were a teacher, who's listening? And if everyone were a listener, who's teaching? And if everyone were teaching, you know, a mouth, then who's doing? Where are the hands? Where are the feet? Where... So, yeah, I mean, it's it's a body and we're supposed to do it together. And we're supposed to emphasize those, those things that we can do best for the glory of God. And, you know, you get into spiritual gifts and roles and everything. And, and it's the spirit who determines how he wants to use us the best. And we just roll with that. And we... Because we remember that it's to the glory of God. It's not, you know, your church or my church or our schools or our fame. It's about him. And if our identity is in Christ and our purpose is the glory of God, that's going to help straighten things out pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. Well, starting in chapter four, verse one, Paul begins explaining how because of the doctrinal truths in the first three chapters, our Christian walk should be affected by those things. I want to throw a few topics at you, Dr. Geffrich, that Paul mentions in the back half of the letter and let you summarize what the apostle writes 
and how what he writes fits into Ephesians as a whole. So first, as you mentioned previously, unity in the body of Christ, starting in chapter four, how does that fit in? Well, if you don't have unity, then you have disunity, right? Or uh, I've heard somebody say it before, that if you have no unity, then you have dis-ease, right? It's, and when a body is no longer functioning properly with itself, it gets diseased. Um, you know, it's get, it gets cancer, it gets sickness, it gets all these things and the body starts to fall apart. And so it's the same way in the church. If the church is infighting, we see this in the book, you know, first Corinthians, especially if the church is infighting and constantly, you know, going back and forth at each other or within itself rather, uh, and that's a local church, much less the body of Christ, you're not going to accomplish anything. Uh, Jesus said the gates of hell won't overcome the, you know, overpower the church. And uh, I heard somebody once say he doesn't need to because we're doing a good enough job, you know, amongst ourselves, <laughs> you know, and that's a sad <laughs> uh, characterization of the church. And yet, you know, you know it and I know it and, you know, all of your listeners know it as well, that that happens. Unity is so important for health. Unity is, is important for impact, for influence. If we want to do anything in this world, if we want to make disciples, share the gospel, Jesus said, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples, by the love that you have for one another, John 13, 35. If we don't have love for one another, the, the world is watching. The world is watching. And how many times does somebody on the outside say, why in the world would I want to be a part of that group? They tear up their own people. Galatians says, uh, Paul says in Galatians, be careful when you are you know, arguing with each other that you don't devour each other because you know, we're human and that's what it devolves into. And so unity is so important, but not unity for the sake of unity. This is a problem that we see in our world and in the church today is that people want to be unified and they'll just grab anything that they can think of that'll try to find unity, no matter what it is. And Paul lists several things here, you know, one body, one spirit, one uh, hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all. It's doctrine, it's truth, it's Christ himself, God himself that we're supposed to be unified under or around. And if we are unified in anything else, but not this, then it doesn't matter. We're not going to be influential. We're not going to be impactful. But if we are unified in doctrine, that means that some people won't join. It means that some people are going to look to say, say um, I don't like your statement of faith. I don't like what you preach. I don't like what you teach. I don't like what you are, are or are not doing in your community. I don't like, and you say, well, okay, that's, that's up to you, but this is what the Bible says. <laughs> this is who God is, and this is where we stand. That's a church that has power behind it. Would you say that any sort of unity that is built around truths that are not given by God, like here in Ephesians chapter four, is a faux unity? It's actually not a real biblical unity, or is it still a legitimate unity? It's just not a biblical unity that God is putting before his people. Well, is it the truths? Because truth, you know, if it's truth, then you should be able to find something, you know, about in the Bible, I would think so. But let's let's take it completely to the secular world, right? Let's take you know go to go to one of the great uh, universities or, or or something. Let's say in in uh, say Oxford or something. They have fellowships, don't they? And these fellowships are made up of people, men and women, who are unified on a very specific thing. 
could be the school of business, the school of law, you know, whatever school of Shakespeare. And they are, they are unified around that one thing. They are impactful. You know, they, they're influential. They study, they write, they discuss, they, they actually affect the world around them because of their unity on the one thing. God created two one things that are supposed to um, impact the world, the family and the church. And, and if you think about it, the local church is really supposed to be just a family of families anyway. So if we are unified around the one thing, whoever or whatever that one thing is, we can have an impact. Well, for the church, the one thing is Christ, but not just any Christ, not just anything that we want to believe about him, but the Christ presented in scripture, crucified, risen, indwelling Christ through, through his spirit, the empowering Christ through his spirit, all of that. If we're not unified around him or that, then yeah, we can have a great influence, but is it going to be an eternal influence? That's really the question. I guess God's people should be very cautious not to sacrifice truth on the altar of unity. Yeah. This pursuit of togetherness where truth becomes optional, I suppose. Yeah. Even in first Corinthians, we're reminded that doctrine divides and we want to make sure that we're not just on the you know, right side of history, as the saying goes, but on the right side of truth, the right side of biblical doctrine. You know, one of these days, and of course, you and I are pastors, and but it doesn't matter what our role is. One of these days, every person, every believer stands before Jesus, and he says, what did you do with the time I gave you? And that should be a sobering question for each one of us, because of especially what we're going to see in chapters four through six is this is what I've told the body to accomplish. Were you part of that <laughs> or were you off doing your own thing? You know? So last question, before we actually go into what you're foreshadowing there about unity, how do we, your pastor, how do we as a church practically pursue and protect the unity being advocated for here? Well, I think teaching strong doctrine, making sure that the people are aware of biblical doctrine, biblical truth is, is a huge thing. You know, if people don't, if, if your people don't have a, a good diet of, of biblical truth, then they're going to fall for anything. If you if you don't have a good statement of faith, a good doctrinal statement, then people are going to want to join your group, your church, and it doesn't matter what you believe, we're, we're going to be here and they're going to bring their own agenda with them, their own beliefs with them. So I think a good diet of teaching on multiple levels, not just, you know, Sundays from the pulpit or whatever, but in discussion groups and making sure you have qualified people who can do that. A good doctrinal statement, even a membership from a church standpoint, a membership, you know, here are our expectations. Here's how we keep the unity in our church. Here's how we minimize division in our church. We don't take a lot of votes because every time you vote, you know, you're creating losers, aren't you? Right. I mean, you're pitting people against each other. And if you take enough votes, then everybody's a loser. It's great. So <laughs> now you got a church full of losers. Right. But part of the part of maintaining unity is, you know, we're not going to we're not going to intentionally pit you against each other. Let's have conversations. Let's talk about feedback. Let's let's plan together. Let's pray together. Let's grow together. And if there's disagreements, fine, we hash it out but we're not going to put people's names officially on the list as you disagreed with this. I think that does more harm than good. 
So between doc, even in, both in your doctrine and your practice, I think there are things you can do. You can maintain unity or at least try to maintain unity, you know, in, in your church. As we move on in chapter four, five, and six, what does Paul say, Dr. Gefrick, about the Christian life? In other words, by what should our lives be increasingly characterized because of some of the truths he's taught in this letter? Well, I think, um, I think Paul really actually answers that, sums it up very nicely in chapter five, verse one, uh, be imitators of God. You know, <laughs> you know what, what should we look like? What should we act like? Be imitators of God. Even the verse just before that, be kind to one another, compassionate, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. How do we forgive one? How do we forgive each other the way God forgave us? How are we supposed to live? In the image and the likeness of God, chapter 4, verses 20 through 2 through 24, uh, building up the body of Christ. Chapter 5 really talks about living in wisdom. I think that's something that we don't emphasize as much as we should. We get so wrapped up in trying to figure out what is God's specific will for this you know, one situation that we forget that he's given us a brain. He's given us an entire Bible. He's given us all sorts of things, godly people around us. And there may be things, you know, Galatians 5 says he set us free, you know, for, for freedom, Christ set us free. So use your freedom to serve one another. Just live with the wisdom that comes with Christ and uh, subject yourselves to one another, be submissive to one another. So that's a right attitude and relationship with each other. And that pretty much is the summary of four, five, and six. He's, you know, how, how to, the big picture of how to live. To your point about wisdom, he says in 5.15 and following, Therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. What does it mean, Dr. Geffrey, to be filled with the Spirit and, and walk in the wisdom that comes with being filled with the Spirit? In the Greek text, it's interesting that filled with the be, be filled is a, is a command. It's a passive command. It's a passive imperative. So it's something that we are supposed to allow to be done to us, right? Mm. <laughs> Say that 10 times fast, right? We are supposed to be putting ourselves into a position where the Holy Spirit can work mm. in and through us. And then he follows it with five participles, these, these verbal adjectives where he says, here is how you do this. So what does it look like when you're filled with the spirit or submitting to the spirit is you're speaking to one another. That's your fellow believers in an appropriate way. Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, you're singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. That's two and three. You're always giving thanks. So it's an attitude of thankfulness to God um, sub and, and submitting yourself, verse 21, submitting yourselves to one another in the fear of Christ. So when we have a right right attitude and a right relationship with each other. And when we have a right attitude and a right relationship with God, we are putting ourselves in the position where the Holy Spirit can really enlighten us. Um, as we see it in the prayer at the end of chapter three is a fantastic prayer, by the way, that by itself is worth the price of the book, right? <laughs> you know, uh, when, when we're he can enlighten us. He can, he can grant us the wisdom. He can show us the options. He can do all that because we have allowed ourselves or we've placed ourselves in the position where he can work. I think the fact that that is a passive command there in verse 18, be filled 
or let yourself be filled with the spirit. It's not something that we can do, but it is something that we can block. It's something that we can prohibit by not letting the Holy Spirit work in our lives at the end of chapter four uh, in verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Well, if we're not living properly, if we're not living properly with each other and with God, that does grieve the Holy Spirit, partially because he is God and he wants us to live in right relationship with him, but partially because he has, let's go back to the body concept, he has a body part that is diseased. He has a body part that is not functioning within its proper parameters. And that grieves him, but that also means that as the great physician, Jesus himself, the great physician, he may have to do something about that. How he determines to work on that body part, you know, is up to him, of course, but sometimes it's tender, loving care. Sometimes it's, you know, discipline or medication. Unfortunately, sometimes he, if it, if we become so cancerous and start harming the body, he may have to cut us out, you know? And so there's this, there's this range of how we, how we live, but we should be good body parts. We should be healthy body parts. And that is me. That is living in proper relation to the other parts and to our head, Christ. As we come near the end of the letter, Paul turns his attention to the famous passage on the armor of God and spiritual warfare. What does Paul say about spiritual warfare, Dr. Geffrick, and how does that fit in to Paul's overall message of the book of Ephesians? The overall concept of spiritual warfare, I think, really goes back to the immediate context. Let's not forget that light and dark thing that's going on in Ephesus. I mean, you've got these Christians who came out of this just wicked pagan background in many cases, and now they are trying to shine as lights in their little world. And it's a big thing. It's a problem. And you'll notice that, uh, and I'm I'm certainly not the first person to bring this up. You've heard it before, but you'll notice that uh, nearly everything mentioned in this passage is defensive. You know, it's armor. It's to protect the believer or to protect the church. And that's the other thing that we got to think about. Is this individual or is this the church that he's writing to that is doing this? That's number one. Number two is sometimes we get so wrapped up in this concept of the armor of God that we sometimes think it's the armor of the Christian. It's not the armor. of It's not your armor. It's not my armor. It says it's the armor of God. And he specifically uh, quotes from Isaiah when he's talking about this, especially the the, uh, helmet of salvation. Isaiah says that God puts on his helmet of salvation when it's time to deliver. So it's sort of like the David and Saul thing in the Old Testament. David is going out to Goliath and Saul says, here, put on my armor. And David couldn't even walk with Saul's armor on. How How does a Christian, a sinful, still sinful Christian think that we can go out and do battle with the enemy who's firing darts and all this stuff at it, you know, these flaming arrows. And we think we can maneuver in God's armor. Uh, I don't think that that's what it's talking about here because the command is not do battle. If you start in verse 10, uh, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. So it's not even us. Verse 11, put on the full armor of God so that you can be able to stand firm because our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against this, you know, all of this, this spiritual stuff. So verse 13, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist 
and of having done everything to stand firm, verse 14, stand firm. Therefore, this is not an offensive. This is not supposed to, this is not teaching us that we're supposed to be going out waging war. We're standing here defensively. We're holding strong to the truth that we have. We're holding strong to protect those around us. And I find it interesting that if we remember that this is the armor of God and not the armor of me or the armor of the Christian, James 4 tells us how, when does the devil flee from us? When we submit to God, submit to God and then resist the devil and he will flee. So we can go all the way back to the book of Psalms. Oh, how many times in the book of Psalms do we find the psalmists, you know, whoever they are at any given time, talking about God as our, our sword and our shield and our rock and our refuge and our safe place. When we're under attack, that's not the time to suit up and go attack the enemy. <laughs> when we're under attack, that's the time to hide in God, rest in God, and let him do the battle for us. Submit yourselves to God resist the devil, and then he'll flee from us. I think that's really the point here of the armor passage. You know, we've got the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, but that's followed up with every prayer and request, pray at all times in the spirit. So let's pray the scriptures when we're under spiritual attack and let's rest ourselves in God. Let's make sure that we have the right relationship with God and with each other. And then just let God do battle for us. And he's going to do a whole lot better job than we can anyway. <laughs> this may be a tough question, but what would you say is the main thrust of Ephesians? Your elevator pitch, perhaps. If you had to boil it down to a single purpose, what would it be? It's going to come back to Christ, of course, in our relationship in the body. But I actually would sum it up with the very last verse, believe it or not. Chapter 6, verse 24, Paul gives this little benediction. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an incorruptible love. If, and I, I know I've said it multiple times, if we have the right relationship, the right attitude with him, with the head of the body, it's going to be a whole lot easier to have the right relationship with the rest of the body parts. You know, what's interesting, I'm teaching through Revelation in our church right now, and the next letter that we have to the church at Ephesus, now we have some to Timothy, um, who, who is there, but the actual next letter to the church in Ephesus is in Revelation 2, and it's Jesus and he says, this I have against you, that you have left your first love. So Paul says, grace be with all those who love with an incorruptible love. And 30 years later, Jesus tells this same local church, you left your first love. You did not maintain an incorruptible love. So I think to sum up the elevator speech of Ephesians is love Jesus with all your heart and everything that you are and love each other. And that sounds an awful lot like what Jesus said, too. Hmm. Would you say that when we do that, rooted in the truths of that opening sentence, amazed by all he's done for us, then unity kind of falls into place. Being imitators of God kind of falls into place. Uh, spiritual warfare and suiting up with the armor of God kind of falls into place, but it all stems from that incorruptible love. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I think so. And I think it's important that we remember believers... Uh, we, sometimes we think that only unbelievers need to hear the gospel. Uh, believers need to be reminded of the gospel all the time, because if we forget the gospel, second Peter one says, forgetting the cleansing of our past sins. 
if we would meditate on chapter one, we would easily be able to, or easier, I guess, be able to maintain that incorruptible love because we have the right perspective of who God is and who you and I are in the big picture. It's when we focus so much on the doing that we forget the being. And that's when our love grows cold, I think. How has God used Ephesians in your life, Dr. Geffrick, to teach or prove, correct, or train you in righteousness? <laughs> How uh, has he not used it, right? <laughs> um, well, again, these fir- this first chapter, the first half of the first chapter, of course, you know, and I'm, I certainly wouldn't say that I love God incorruptibly, you know, all the time. Of course not. But I cannot read the first 14 verses, uh, sometimes even without tearing up a little bit. And just thinking of, of everything that God has done, not just for us, not for the church, but for me, it's like, I don't even need the rest of the book sometimes, you know, you just focus on that. As a pastor, chapter four, especially, and we didn't really talk about this specifically, but especially uh, verses you know, 11 through 16, what is the role of the church leader? What is the role? How is the body supposed to function? Uh, doing ministry and and building itself up and protecting each other from the waves of of deceitful men and and all that. And then just that reminder from chapter six, the reminder to live in wisdom from chapter five. And then in chapter six, the reminder that I'm not the one out there doing battle anyway. When I do battle, I lose. You know, Satan and I go head to head. I lose every time, every time. But I rest in Christ he is my sword and shield and rock and refuge and, and everything, then I win. And then I really understand what it means to be more than conquerors through him who loved us. Amen. Well, thanks again for all the time you've graciously given us today, Dr. Geffrick, and helping us understand Ephesians a little bit better. Much appreciated. Well, it's been a pleasure. Can we do this again? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining us this week. For more information about Oak Ridge Bible Chapel, the ministries of the church, or for more resources like this one, please visit oakridgebiblechapel.org. And make sure to join us next week as together we make our way through the Bible cover to cover.